Welcome to the Rooster Crows, a podcast run by Lawrence Park Community Church. Today's episode is about an epidemic that has impacted Canadians everywhere, the opioid crisis. Stephen Milton's guest is Missy McLean, the co-director of the Ontario chapter of Moms Stop the Harm, an organization which aims to create meaningful action around drug use and bringing a human face to this issue. Two years ago, the subject of opioid addiction became a hot topic in North Toronto. The pandemic led to the opening of 40 new homeless shelters in Toronto, and one of them was the Roehampton Hotel shelter near the intersection of Young and Eglinton. This is a very wealthy part of town. There had not been many homeless people on the streets before the shelter opened. There had always been some, but suddenly there were a lot more. There had been people who lived in the ravines nearby, but when the shelter opened in the summer of 2020, all that changed. Almost overnight, neighbors noticed that there were used syringes and drug paraphernalia in alleyways, parks, and even schoolyards. The shelter is located next to a daycare center, and it's across the street from a public school. So this was very upsetting for many people in the neighborhood. It didn't help that the city had decided to open the shelter without telling the community and actually without even telling the city councillors. The community felt ambushed and afraid that their children would be endangered by the drug use, which was now happening on the streets and even in the schoolyards where their kids went. I was drawn into this because I've known and helped homeless people for many years. For over a decade, I volunteered at a soup kitchen run by a church And I got to know those who were poor and experiencing homelessness and who had substance use issues. So when the shelter opened, I saw an opportunity for our churches in North Toronto to help people who were without housing. And I admit that I did not appreciate just how bad the opioid addiction crisis was at that time, or how common the use of opioids was among the shelter residents. That summer, I attended a protest rally about the shelter. I marched with people who wanted to help the residents of the shelter. On that very warm summer day, there was also another rally happening at the same time that had been put together by members of the community who weren't happy about the shelter's presence in their neighborhood. That rally wanted the shelter to close down, or at the very least, to kick out the substance users so the neighborhood could be safer again. During the rally, and there was a lot of shouting coming from both sides, I walked over to the other side to talk to the people who had come out from the neighborhood to protest against the presence of people who were using drugs in the shelter. I was wearing my clerical collar at the time, something I don't do very much, but which I do when I go to protest rallies. I met a man who was around 60, 65 years old, who told me that anyone who overdosed and died in the shelter had it coming. They were just lazy, self-indulgent pleasure seekers, he said. He also said if the same thing happened to his own son, he would feel the same way. I was shocked by his statement and that he would say it to me when I've got my minister's collar on. Surely he knew that ministers were people who were sympathetic to everyone. And yet he still told me that it was these people's own fault if they overdosed and good riddance. It gives you an idea of just how upset and scared people were at the time. And I came away from the rally wanting to know more about opioid addiction. How do people get addicted and why? 
Was this just something found mostly among the poor and those experiencing homelessness? And how can we help people who have these addictions? I had many questions, and since that rally, I've talked to many experts about it and learned that there's better ways of thinking about this and expressing it. Today, I'm talking to Missy McLean, Mom Stop the Harm. It's a national organization devoted to helping those who have addictions, their families, and in particular, changing the laws and minds of Canadians about this issue. So first of all, Missy, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is a subject I could talk about all day, every day. So I'm really pleased to be here with you. Well, and you're um, the Ontario director, I guess, of Mom Stop the Harm. Um, What is Mom Stop the Harm? Yeah. So Mom Stop the Harm is a network of families from across Canada impacted by harms and deaths related to substance use. So um, primarily, you know, families who have lost a loved one um, to a a toxic drug poisoning um, or substance use related death. Um, But also we also include, you know, um, friends, you know, chosen family members, as well as, you know, families of origin and, um, and allies as well. Folks who perhaps don't have a direct experience of being impacted by a loved one's substance use or losing someone as a result or connected to their substance use, um, but who um, are, you know, passionate about advocating for the types of changes and the types of um, care that we advocate for. And so they join our, our efforts as well. And how did you get involved? Do you have someone in your family who's passed away because of this or? So I have, uh, I've lost a friend um, to, to a toxic drug poisoning. Um, I do a lot of uh, community work, harm reduction work and outreach work and have, um, you know, lost people I was connected with in that, in that capacity um, to drug poisonings. And, and then I also have a loved one who um, I've been walking with uh, in their journey for about 20 years. They have a, um, a diagnosis of a severe mental illness and their substance use really fluctuates based on where their mental health is. And that can often include um, using criminalized substances. And so um, I came to Mom Stop the Harm looking for really for support for myself because we sort of have these three sort of um, pillars of what we do, which is, um, you know, we do our advocacy work, we do our educating, and we do support. And so I first came to Mom Stop the Harm looking for support because they have um, this group called uh, Holding Hope, mm-hmm. which is peer-based support for folks who are being impacted by a loved one's substance use. So that's how I first arrived at Mom Stop the Harm. Then I was also doing a lot of advocacy work already, and um, and I was encouraged by one of the founding members, Leslie McBain, to get even more involved with Mom Stop the Harm. She is the one who encouraged me to, um, you know, um, join the board and to take, you know, trying to move into, step into greater leadership uh, roles, especially within the province of Ontario, where I'm actually a co-director. I have a, a new co-director. Um, I When I first joined, I was a co-director with a woman named Christine Wingate, who's based in Ottawa, who was a, is continues to be a terrific mentor to me. And, um, and now we have a new um, Ontario director named Rose Delisle. And so Rose and I are just starting to, um, she was just 
uh, add to the board this past summer at our AGM. And so we're just starting to build our foundation of how we're going to work together in the province. Oh, that's great. Cool. Um, and, you know, you heard my introduction. Um, there are a lot of misconceptions about this. And on that particular day, I met someone who uh, saw substance users as just, you know, basically lazy hedonists. He said to my face, um, you know, I, I, anybody who overdoses just has it coming to them. Uh, you know, there are a bunch of, you know, lazy hedonists who is bringing this all on themselves. And I must admit at the time, I was just shocked by what he was saying. And I was wearing a collar and like, <laughs> couldn't he figure out that, you know, I'm going to be a whole lot more compassionate about these things than that. Um, but he felt quite comfortable saying that to my face. And I'm just curious, you've probably come across that kind of attitude as well, right? So yeah. what do you say to people when they say something like that? It's really tough because, you know, my, even just hearing you recount that exchange with this person, it hits me in my, in my gut and in my heart so hard. And, um, and so of course my first instinct is to say, you know, something really strong, like you don't know what you're talking about. You're wrong. Uh, that's hateful. Um, and to really shame this person about their views. What I, where I, I've sort of been working towards is really finding a way when I'm confronted with someone who holds, because this is a really divisive issue, right? And it, and it's divisive and it, ha it draws really strong emotions for so many reasons. And that's the part that I try to um, tap into my sense, not of outrage, but of curiosity when I hear really strong sentiments like that. And I want to better understand, okay, this person holds this, holds this belief, holds this view. Where is it coming from? What is What's happening there? And then if I tap into my sense of curiosity, then it also allows me to tap into my um, patience, <laughs> compassion, empathy, right? Um, and and to, to meet that person uh, from a place of um, trying to understand rather than meeting, you know, rather than rising to their uh, anger or... Um, their, their really strong reaction to what we're talking about, I tried to keep it rooted. So, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is when, when I heard that, that, that belief expressed was, you know, that's a major, wow, that's a major generalization um, that is rooted in so much stigma that is rooted in so much uh, misinformation, miseducation, misunderstanding, um, what, what is this person's, what's, what's their experience? Maybe they don't have any experience with it, with, you know, being impacted or, or knowing someone who, and, and speaking specifically to folks who, um, you know, who use substances, maybe have problematic, um, substance use issues, struggling with their substance use, and also are experiencing homelessness. That's a very, you know, specific part of a segment of the population, because what I think, you know, what we don't often think about when we talk about substance use is that like substance use, just about everyone is a substance user, right? If we're really breaking it down. So are we talking, you know, is this person talking about specifically, I'm guessing they're talking about folks who use criminalized substances, legal substances. Um, they're talking about folks, you know, we were at the shelter. So folks who are um, experiencing homelessness. And then we can get into all the other 
factors of that, you know, that intersect with those populations that makes them vulnerable, that puts them, you know, that sort of finds them in this position of being homeless and, and depending on substances for survival in a lot of cases um, to either, you know, uh, get through their day, self-medicate, all of these different things. Um, and I guess there is there is research which shows that um, some segment of the uh, population which uses <clears throat> substances like opioids have a history of trauma in their background, right? Like 100%. They, they, I mean, yeah. these are painkillers and they're carrying a lot of pain all the time, right? Yeah, yeah. It's And we can get more into all of these factors that can lead someone to problematic substance use, lead to addiction. But I think it's really important that we remember that for the majority of folks who use substances, including criminalized substances, their use is not an issue at all. Right. They, there are lots of people who use substances, a variety of substances, and they, you know, my, my friend who I lost, you know, when we talk, when, when I hear people talking about, well, treatment, treatment, you know, um, they have to go to rehab, they have to do all these things. My friend that, my friend that we lost, they didn't need treatment. They went to work every day. They had a good job. They were good at their job. They had an apartment. They had a dog that they cared for and loved. Uh, spoiled, I'll even say. They had a partner that they were deeply committed to. They had a family that they were deeply involved with. You know, uh, nieces, nephews that they were really part of their lives. This was not somebody who um, the substance use wasn't was an issue for them. The only time it became an issue for them and an issue that ultimately led to their death was because the way that, that certain substances are criminalized, the illicit drug supply that um, is part of the, this landscape of substance use, that's what made it an issue for my friend. Yeah, let's break that down a little bit because I think one of the things which people think, okay, well, you know, it's the drug user's fault if they die from it because they overdosed, right? And you've spoken about how even the way we use those words and the words that we choose, like the word overdose, is mm -hmm. sort of freighted with all sorts of assumptions. Can you mm -hmm. talk about that? Yeah. So when overdose, when someone overdoses, right, it, that, that essentially speaks to the fact that they've taken an overdosage of a substance. They took too much of the substance, right? Um, so, yes, there absolutely are instances where somebody takes um, too much of a, of a substance, particularly, usually not even a, a criminalized substance. Usually it's a prescribed substance where the person, you know, especially when we see this in seniors, where they actually forget that they've taken their medication. They take it again. When we see overdose and overdose deaths in seniors, that's that's the scenario. So overdose happens when someone takes too much of a substance. The crisis that is killing 21 people in our country a day right now is really, if we're being more specific in our language, it's a crisis of toxic drug poisonings. So people who use, even if we say talk about people who use criminalized substances, um, they know what their tolerance is. The, the vast majority, especially experienced 
people who have been using certain substances for a long time, they're very aware of their body's tolerance. They're aware of how to dose themselves with their, with their substance of choice. Right. But that, that's not what is, so they're not taking too much of their substance, whether that be a prescribed painkiller or um, heroin or fentanyl or, or cocaine. They're not taking too much of it. What's happening is they're taking substance that is toxic that is cut with, you know, it, you know, if they aren't usually a, um, an opioid user, they take, they're usually a stimulant user. The drug supply right now is so toxic that people are getting stimulants cut with opioids. That's where we see the drug poisoning. We see folks who take, um, you know, an unregulated, uh, supply of, um, an opioid like heroin or fentanyl, and it is cut with so many other chemicals and it's not, you know, it's not regulated. They, there's no way for them to know what the strength is. So because it's an unregulated illicit supply. So we say, you know, unintentional overdose if they took too much, but really what's happening is it's a toxic drug and they're being killed by the toxicity of the drug. Right. Um, and then the other word which gets bandied around is drug addict. Mm-hmm. So, and you haven't used that word so far in our conversation. So <laughs> can you explain what, what's the freighted, uh, what's the loaded word drug addict mean to you and why don't you use it? Yeah. So drug addict is such a loaded term and it's loaded with stigma. This is the result of decades of, um, messaging, of criminalization, of everything we've been told about what it means about a person if they use an illicit drug, a criminalized drug, right? That's where the term drug addict really is sort of rooted in in our collective understanding of it. So what we talk about, you know, we, I say that, you know, the, the royal we in terms of folks who don't have personal experience of using or having problematic or having an addiction to a toxic drug, we talk about person-first language. Because when I say drug addict, the emphasis is on the substance and on the uh, the problematic use, right? The, the condition of, of addiction. Where is the person in that terminology? Where is the person? And we lose, we lose, and it seems so um, basic, but it really does. When you start using labels like drug addict, you we lose... Uh, sight of that this is a person, this is a human being. Mm-hmm. And so that's why um, uh, advocates and um, you know, academics and different folks really focus on person first language. So saying a person who uses criminalized drugs, a person who's struggling with their substance use, right? A person who's experiencing addiction. Um, now that's for those of us um, who don't have that lived experience of it, but it's also, you know, on the flip side, and we, we see this in a lot of marginalized communities that if you do have lived experience of, you know, addiction of substance use, you're going to have your own identity, how you prefer to identify yourself. Maybe there's a reclamation of certain terms, right? We see this in various communities, a reclaiming of terms that have been used against a marginalized community. 
And so, um, you know, for someone who has a history and a personal experience, lived experience of addiction and those things, they want to refer to themselves if they consider, if they refer to themselves as a drug addict, and that's for, that's for them to use that terminology. I'm not here to police people's language about themselves. Where I do take issue is people talking about others mm-hmm. and losing sight of their, of their humanity. And so right. that's where that, that language nuance comes in. Yeah. yeah. And I guess the term drug addict assumes an utter lack of agency, right? It assumes a lack of control because you are addicted to a substance, which is now the boss of you. Right. So it, it, yeah. it sort of assumes that you're not there anymore. Right. Well, yeah. And I think it just, again, it conjures up. If we think about this decades long war on drugs, we have been told, you know, especially in North America, we've been told what does a drug addict look like? What does a person who is addicted to drugs look like? What is it? What What do we know about them? What do really? What do we presume about them? Because if you've met one person who who uses drugs, you've met one person who uses drugs, right? right. Um, but that's really that's where that that stigmatizing language is really rooted. It's really embedded in our cultural consciousness, and um, and so that's why we're trying to move away and move towards person first language. Yeah. And it's ironic, right? And that, you know, the, during the war on drugs, uh, which, you know, persists, but in its heyday, there was this sense of, you know, the dangerous criminal who, you know, was, uh, was on drugs and wanted to get your kids on drugs, all that kind of stuff. Right. But in the last 15 years or so with uh, the rise of prescription opioids, right. The profile of substance users has expanded and changed, right. Like, can you just talk about how, you know, uh, uh, simple things like going to the doctor can get you in a situation where you end up becoming a substance user and even of illegal substances? So I guess like, you know, if we're talking about sort of what lead, what might lead someone to develop an addiction to say an opioid, right? Um, going from that, that sort of what we, what we now know to be like a very familiar scenario of, you know, so-and-so had back pain. They went to their doctor. The doctor prescribed this opioid. They then became, you know, addicted to this opioid. And then that led them down to illicit drugs and street drugs and all of these pieces, right? So I think we need to, um, there's so much to unpack there because there's so much more to that story that doesn't get told when we when we when we hear that really quick synopsis of that scenario the body develops the dependence on the opioid so there's a physical component to an addiction um, it's it's really it's a physical dependence gets this prescription from their doctor um, they start to build a tolerance they start to need to take more of the substance to get the same relief that they were getting previously and um, and so that's the body's dependence and tolerance fluctuating. We're not even in the addiction phase yet, right? Um, mm-hmm. But then there's other pieces that start to come into play. It's like, so then when that um, tolerance increases and suddenly they're needing more of the substance and then the doctor goes, and this is what we saw a lot in North America with the you know, oxycodone and, um, and that sort of crisis that we um, hear so much about, is that then there was this crackdown. People said, oh, no, 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 we can't have people taking more and more of the substances and getting it from their doctors. So we're just going to cut that right off. This is where people are made very vulnerable because suddenly the body's dependence on that on that substance 
kicks into high gear, when it's denied, it's been getting this, this substance that is mitigating the pain, right? Allowing for more freedom of movement in whatever capacity. Suddenly it's, it's cut off or re- dramatically reduced. And there is con- there's a consequence to that, a physical consequence. It's called withdrawal. And it is agony. It is torture. It, it has, you know, it can be quite dangerous, um, for folks. And so that's when we hear, okay, so the person, you know, who started with the prescribed opioid use then moves into, so suddenly now they're, so now they're trying to seek out, okay, well, you know that you can find these same pills on the street. So they're going to find the same pills on the street. Well, okay. Those pills still cost quite a bit, right? There's so many other factors. Like I, I feel like I'm going to go down this road, but while this person has been, you know, uh, recovering from this injury, were they able to work? Has their income been affected? Right? Like all of the, what has their mental health been like? Have they been isolated at home? Has their identity that's been associated with their job or with their, you know, sport or whatever, has that been impacted? So now we have someone who is physically vulnerable from their dependence and this gap being created. We have someone who may have um, psychological and, and mental health in emotional you know, vulnerabilities that have been created in the circumstance that they found themselves in. And now they're going out to try to, you know, mitigate the, the pain and the discomfort and the withdrawal, the absolute agony of withdrawal from the opioid. And they go to the street, the pills, you know, cost a lot of money. They're not getting it from the prescription anymore. It's not covered by, oh, you know, it's not covered right. by the drug plan anymore. Yep. So then an alternative is offered, okay, you can get a similar kind of physical relief from this other substance. And yes, it's an illegal substance. And yes, you know, maybe your method of, uh, of consumption is going to change, um, but it's less expensive and you don't have any money because, you know, or you're on a reduced income. So do you see like all these, I know I just right. went on a really long road, yeah. but it is a really long road. People think it's like this, like, oh, we took this and then this happened. And then, you know, it was like one, two, three, it just... It is dominoes, but it's so much deeper than just, you know, they became this ravenous, um, this person with this ravenous uh, desire for for drugs, and that became the undoing. There's so much more that goes into the story. Yeah, I hadn't heard that bit about um, just the, the economic aspect to it, that if you are looking for exactly the same pills that your doctor was prescribing, then those cost a lot of money. But there are other cheaper options, which, of course, are going to be you know, less, um, less conscientiously prepared with yeah. you in mind, like not with you in mind at all, of course. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I presume that those sorts of street drugs are then more likely to be laced with other things. Right? Yes. Yeah. Because they're unregulated. The person who's um, then seeking them out, has just made, uh, put at more risk at higher risk. They're, they're at the mercy of the illicit drug supply that has no regulation and um, or oversight, and this was what lands us into into a, a crisis of toxic drug deaths that's claiming you know thousands and thousands of lives every year. Yeah, I mean in Toronto, the uh, the rate of uh, toxic drug poisonings, like poisoning deaths, um, has risen by two hundred and seventy three percent since I think two thousand and sixteen. Like mm-hmm. it's just ridiculous. It just exploded. Mm-hmm. Um, and every month in Toronto downtown, uh, right beside the Eaton Center, there's a little church. 
And at that church, they have a monthly memorial service for people who have died on the streets, people experiencing homelessness who have died. And a lot of those deaths are from exactly this. Um, and the city, you know, uh, I don't know, I, talking to city officials about this, they all shake their heads and they go, well, you know what, like, we'd like to do more, but this problem is, it always involves three levels of government because the federal government is the one who makes the laws about whether which drugs are legal in this country and which aren't. And then the provincial government is in charge of health care. Mm -hmm. So if you want to open a safe, you know, a safe injection site or a safe use site, mm -hmm. you're going to have to get the province in on it. But you're also going to have to have the feds make a, an exception for that clinic because of course there's controlled substances there and otherwise it would be a criminal activity and then this and then there's the city level that says we'd love to open these things um, but you know we need so many layers of government to say yes um, it's just it seems like it's such a quagmire um, and and it's so easy for politicians to say we're going to crack down on drugs and we're going to crack down on crime and it's much harder to get elected by saying we're going to be compassionate to people that we taught you to hate <laughs> you know it's just it. it's just awful that's it yeah what you just summarized is is it paints just a really vivid picture of all the challenges that are faced right and especially by know the community members and especially by community members who are the folks who are most impacted by this crisis who are the people who are using the illicit substances and have been you know every every advancement every i'll call it a win every bit of progress that has been made in countering and ending the war on drugs has not been led by bureaucrats uh you know politicians elected um or even advocates like myself that all of those wins, you know, getting um, needle exchange, getting safe consumption sites, all of this, that is the win of the drug user um, movement, right? They are the folks who have, while they've been trying to survive and save themselves and their community, they have been doing the work to, you know, to just keep working towards getting the gains that will help them to survive and stay alive. So full credit goes to them, but you just really articulated all of the all of what they're up against. Um, and so I think what I'd add to that too, when you're talking about the the real rise in the number of of, of toxic drug deaths and all these things, and, and sort of like why why this explosion in the last five years, all of these pieces, there's a lot of things, and I'm gonna talk, I'm gonna touch on you know a subject that gets again one of these subjects that's really divisive that's really explosive for people but when we talk about defunding or divesting from uh, police law enforcement when we talk about those pieces and investing in community that's what we're talking about right because it's called the iron law of prohibition the stronger the enforcement the stronger the substances and the, the stronger the, the harms that they cause, right? We saw this in like the 1920s with prohibition, right? This is what led to moonshine. Substance use has been around for, you know, however long, uh, centuries, decades, whatever. It, it's not going away. And so people are going to find a way to um, access what they, what they need, but they got to get creative when they're, you know, being criminalized and have to hide. And so that forces this concentration of the substances and that leads to harm. So iron law prohibition. So that's part of what we're seeing, right? All of these, this rising, you know, war on drugs, 
crack down on, you know, on people who use drugs, crack down on the illicit drug supply without uh, also raising up all of the pieces that would actually support folks and that would eliminate some of those harms that come through it. That's what leads to this, um, you know, one of the things that leads to this crisis of deaths. Then we have um, COVID that comes through, right? And suddenly supplies of substances that have been, you know, fairly consistent, fairly reliable, you know, they're cut off. And so again, people have to start getting, um, you know, it's supply and demand. People have to start getting, okay, so we've got this much of, of a certain supply, so now we're gonna have to cut it a few more times. Oh, now we gotta cut it a few more times to be able to meet the demand that's out there. And when it's an illicit supply that's being overseen by folks who, you know, and I'm not talking about like the, the local distributor, the person who's selling the drugs, you know, to their neighbors, to their friends, to the, to the community members and is doing that exchange, meaning that demand. I'm talking about like the very high level folks who are doing the cutting and everything of the, of the, subs, of the supply. They're not, they're just looking at the, the bottom line of, of how much money can be made not about the health and well-being of, of the folks way down the line who are receiving the substances. Um, so that was a big part of it too. And then we have, again, as all these other social factors, you know, this ongoing, you know, he, people being pushed into homelessness because of a housing crisis, because of, you know, um, in a poverty and this income disparity where we have social assistance rates that haven't been raised and or kept rate with inflation or or given people a livable wage, right? Like our, our social assistance rates keep literally keep people below the poverty line. And so um, all of these factors in the last, you know, five, 10 years, like it's just, I think so often it's hard for people to make the connection of policy um legislation, uh, you know, all these different things that has started decades ago and is now almost like coming home to roost because you just, you throw in one unexpected element, like a, like a pandemic. Mm -hmm. And we talk about how it's exasperated and really like revealed all of the, you know, the vulnerabilities and the, and exposed all of these gaps in all of our systems and, and the social safety and everything. And, and that's going to impact uh, people who use drugs at the same time. It's interesting on the local level, you know, I started all this talking about this shelter that we have in our neighborhood now. And um, it's a hotel, right? They took an old hotel, which, you know, suddenly couldn't have guests because there was a pandemic, right? And um, those hotels became suddenly very attractive sites for uh, creating shelters for homeless people because they were empty. They are all set up for, you know, having people. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of them said, okay, yeah, we'll lease our hotel to you. And so the city took over all these hotels and the difference between a hotel and a regular um, shelter for the homeless is that at least in Toronto, a lot of the shelters that were built before the crisis have congregate settings, which means that, you know, you have like 40 bunk beds in the same room, right? And there's all sorts of demeaning aspects to living like that. It's loud, the lights are on, it's, you know, there's no privacy. Mm -hmm. There's all sorts of things which are nasty about it. But one of the unexpected results of putting people into the hotels was that the people who were using uh, substances, particularly one substances that were poisoned, mm -hmm. um, they were injecting with nobody to see them 
you know, have an adverse reaction. And as a result, ironically, like the, the, there was a spike in deaths in the shelters because there were so many more people isolated taking drugs who then had adverse reactions and no one was there to notice. And the shelters did try to respond to that in various ways. You know, they had, they have wellness checks where they knock on the door several times a day and they encourage people who are using just before you use, call down to the front desk. And if we don't hear from you again in 10 minutes, we'll assume something's gone wrong and we'll run upstairs. Um, but, you know, it's, it's one of those things where the COVID just had so many unintended consequences, which have impacted this very vulnerable population. Now, I want to ask you, um, I know that Mom Stop the Harm does a lot of work in terms of uh, lobbying the government to try and change our laws at the federal level and other levels. And one of the things which uh, people have argued for is it should be safe and legal to carry um, a personal supply of drugs on your person without needing to be harassed by the police. And that was something which had, you know, been long ago. And then uh, a few months ago, uh, the Brit- in British Columbia, the federal government said, okay, we're going to try this in British Columbia. And we're going to allow people to carry up to 2.5 grams of controlled substances on them. And that'll be legal now. It's not a problem. And I gather that that is not exactly what the advocates and the uh, drug using community wanted. Can you explain that a bit? A lot of people sort of on the on the periphery, you know, the general public said, oh, look, they are going to legalize uh, personal possession of small of of small amounts of, of drugs for personal use. This is a huge win. And if we look at the grants, you know, the the grand history and scheme of the war on drugs and the and the landscape of of drug use in the country, it is a win. Right, that we would ever see the day when um, a government would sanction um, possession for personal use of, of criminalized substances. So yes, okay, there is significance there. But I think the biggest challenge with what's happened in British Columbia is it disenfranchised the advocates and especially the um, the drug user um, organizers. Vancouver Area Network of People Who Use Drugs, these and 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 um, the Drug User Liberation Front, these these organizations of uh, folks who are um, who use criminalized substances, and um, it really disenfranchised them because they are. We talk about lived experience, but we also talk about lived expertise. They are the ones who know what is going to make a difference for them, and so if the goal of this legislation was to stop the harm of people being charged with pers- with possession for personal use and to eliminate those harms then um, just seems like common sense that it would that we would need to listen to the folks who are being impacted by those harms and are going to either benefit or, or not benefit from these changes in legislation and so what uh, the drug user activist communities, told the government in consultation was, you know, X amount would be, um, would be a sufficient uh, amount that would, that would mitigate some of these harms. And they were consulted in bad faith because um, they were, you know, people were asked to come to the table, uh, drug user activists were asked to come to the table to share their expertise, their lived expertise, to um, have conversations. They sat at tables with police, the people who have been harming them for decades. They sat at the same tables as politicians and law enforcement, and they engaged in these conversations in good faith. 
And at the end of the day, the amount that was decided on was an amount that was dictated by law enforcement and did not reflect any of the engagement that the drug user community had offered and provided. And so um, that's a long way of saying that basically, you know, what ended up happening was it, it looks good on paper, but in practice, it is not going to have the impact, the desired impact that um, people were promised, that it's going to mitigate the harms, that it's going to stop people from being criminalized for having um, substances for personal possession on their, on their person. Um, it really didn't take into fact, into fact any of like the practicalities of how people purchase their, their illicit drugs, um, why, you know, they might want to buy in larger quantities, you know, um, so many things that people shared, that the drug user activists shared insights, um, trying to make people understand like, okay, this is why we're saying this quantity. Um, and ultimately BC, you know, at the end of the day, they, they did not, um, they didn't create policy that reflects any of the input that was provided by the drug user community. And that's why it's not the great success that people thought it was. I gather some people have said, well, if I'm buying some heroin, I'm probably also going to have some grass with me since, you know, I smoke weed as well. That added up to 2.5. No, it's always going to be more than 2.5. Um, and you know, if you're going to go see your dealer, why not get three days worth rather than just one day's worth? Right. Like, and, and how do the police know that you've just, that you're, that you've got 2.5 unless they stop you and check and pull out their scales and see, you know, do you really have 2.5? So you're not being, uh, you're not being taken out of the surveillance loop. If anything, there's a new line in the sand that they can, you know, cross over and over and over again, just to check. Yeah. It's just not going to serve the purpose um, that it was intended to serve, which is to stop the harm against folks who are criminalized and surveilled and and, um, put at most risk because of their um, substance use of choice, their, their substance of choice. Yeah, I, I think that this is something which we also see for members of the racialized community, particularly mm-hmm. black people, that, you know, studies have been done that have shown that the mere threat of being stopped by the police creates a sort of psychic burden that people carry that is just not good for you. You know, like, you know, uh, as as I'm a white person and I'm a white male, so I walk around and I never worry about the police stopping me unless I'm speeding or something. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to have very explicitly broken a rule for me to ever worry about the police stopping mm-hmm. me. Whereas um, it's, you know, black people know that they could be stopped at any time, particularly young black mm-hmm. people. And that mm-hmm. is stressful. And that actually undermines your mental and physical health. Right. Um and so what seems like an argument for social safety is actually the undermining of the freedoms of citizens in our society. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, drug users are in the same situation, right? You know, walking down the street, am I going to get busted? Am I going to be stopped? You know, that's a terrible yeah. thing to live with. This is um, it. And we know that, you know, when it comes to Canada's drug laws and why certain drugs are criminalized and others aren't, those policies are deeply rooted in racism, in uh, colonialism, in classism, right? There's a reason uh, why, like people talk about hard drugs or soft drugs. There are no, there's no such thing as a hard drug. There are only, what I always say, there's no such thing as a hard or soft drug. There are only hard policies. 
that cause harm, harm, hard drug policies. And they disproportionately, has been proven over and over again, they disproportionately impact indigenous, black, and racialized uh, communities. And it, it, they impa- it impacts those communities in a variety of ways, in the rates of deaths, in uh, the over-incarceration of, of members of these communities. Um, and so, you know, I, an example goes back to the 80s and, the, and, you know, sort of the heyday of the war on drugs, although it's still, you know, really alive and thriving, is that the ways in which we talk about, like, the Rockefeller laws. Right? And so these are laws that, like, impose these penalties. And so... Um, you know, if someone was uh, found to have uh, cocaine, powder cocaine on their person, right, it received this sentence. If, the, if someone was found to have crack cocaine, so it's not powder form, it's like a crystallized rock, um, right, um, the sentence was exponentially higher, the penalty associated with crack cocaine versus powder cocaine. These are the same substance. The biggest difference in what the Rockefeller laws were designed to do. Powder cocaine was predominantly used by white upper class uh, folks and cork cocaine Mm -hmm. was predominantly used by uh, low income uh, members of black communities, racialized communities. The impacts of of racism on our drug policies exist in Canada as well. Um, I just saw it the other day when I was um, going through some, you know, uh, paperwork, uh, related to um, you know, legal aid uh, applications. And it had, I was, I was astonished that crack cocaine and powder co- co- cocaine were separated out in different quantities. David Posis, it uh, was a, well, he's a writer and um, he was a, a drug user himself and he passed um, just within the past year. And I always quote him because he always said that, you know, when we think about substances and what's legal and what's illegal, alcohol is not legal because it's safer. It's safer because it's legal, right? And that applies to so many substances, right? Fentanyl is used in hospitals all the time. It, it is, a, is a commonly used uh, pain medication. Um, when it becomes uh, unsafe is when it's taken out of that regulated, right, um, monitored a a sort of environment and put into an environment like a street um, environment where it doesn't have the same oversight like it's it's all in how things are um, regulated or not regulated criminalized or not criminalized um, and how the communities who use those those substances are viewed and treated as well it's a huge part of it yeah it certainly seems on so many levels that our society is very interested in control we're really interesting, are interested in controlling other people. The right people should be controlling the so-called wrong people. And this just keeps playing itself out across every sector of society. And drug laws seem to be another instance of that, where, you know, there's, there's lots of CEOs who uh, are alcoholics, um, who may have, you know, use drugs as a, in a recreational way and not always in a safe way, but society's not jumping up and down and saying the corporate sector's in trouble because we have, uh, you know, substance users of intoxicating substances among the highest echelons of society. We never seem to talk that way. We're always talking about the 
the lower class, the people at the bottom, they get all of our attention as the people who need to be controlled. And it seems to be a basically an alibi for the practice of control. Like it's an, it's an advertisement for why control is a legitimate exercise. And it doesn't really matter who gets controlled as long as it's, it's legitimated over and over and over again. And it's, you know, from a progressive Christian point of view, this is a part of our fallen nature as a society that we've mistaken. We, we've got a mistaken idea of humanity. We have this idea that humanity is something that you achieve, not something that you have. The right people have it, and therefore they should be in control of those who don't. And that is just a toxic, horrible idea. If we started with the idea that everybody is of equal worth and how do we make it better for everybody from the ground up, our society would be turned upside down, but made into a much, much better place and much closer to the way we Christians think God had in mind for us. But we keep saying, nope, I'd rather just be in charge of somebody else. And drug policy seems to be another example of that. So... Missy, for people who want to uh, learn more and help uh, Mom Stop the Harm, how can they get in touch with you? Sure. So that the best way to get in touch with us and to learn more about what we're all about um, is to go to our website, which is momsstoptheharm.com. And on that site, people can find information about, you know, um, what are what are our... Uh, um, mission, vision, and, and beliefs? What are the um, pieces of advocacy that we're working on? What are we calling for in, in terms of change? But they can also find resources. So I talked about that education piece. So we, um, we offer, you know, webinars. We um, have uh, lists of resources on our website for folks who maybe want to read more about this, learn more of the history, learn more of the theory. We did. We talked really briefly, you know, it's just about the, the model of addiction, and um, there's so much literature out about what that those various models, how they've evolved, and sort of how they influence policy. Um, so all of those pieces. Um, we also have social media channels, um, so people can you know watch past webinars on our YouTube channel. They can stay um, connected with our advocacy work. Um, through our Facebook or Instagram or Twitter accounts. Um, but what they'll also find on all of those um, um, channels is information about our support pieces too. And so I touched on that. So support is a huge, it's really, it's the heart of what Mom Stop the Harm does. We are a network of families um, that has come together to support each other, right? And to support our loved ones who are, who are struggling. Um, and so we have... Uh, groups across the country, peer support facilitated groups. Um, Holding Hope is for those folks who are currently being impacted by a loved one's substance use. Healing Hearts, um, those are our bereavement circles for folks who have lost a loved one to a a toxic drug poisoning or substance use related death. Um, So people can find um, some some connection and network there. And we have really um, active private communities on our social media, like on Facebook, we have private groups for healing hearts where folks can stay connected with each other and and offer support that way as well as um, in the um, actual group meetings as well. Yeah. 
Well, that's great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk and talk to me today and, um, you know, keep up the fantastic work. And I hope that some of our listeners uh, will reach out and go to your website, whether they uh, just want to help change policy in this nation or if they need help themselves. Thank you, Stephen and Missy McLean. You can find links to Mom Stop the Harm and to the talk that Missy had with Lawrence Park Community Church, along with other contact info, in the description of this podcast or on our website at lawrenceparkchurch.ca. The Rooster Crows is run by Stephen Milton and Roberta Howie at Lawrence Park Community Church here in Toronto. Thank you for joining us, and until next time, take care.